Um, I got a note yesterday, uh, someone asking how other Buddhist traditions um, are regarding or thinking about the notion of a secular Buddhism. And in particular, what would someone like the Dalai Lama think? Well, quite uh, interestingly, uh, the Dalai Lama has picked up on the idea of secularity. And I'm going to read a couple of passages to uh, quotes from him. Um, he, he said recently, for example, a year or so ago, he says, in today's secular world, religion alone is no longer adequate as a basis for ethics. Any religion-based answer to the problem of our neglect of inner values can never be universal and so will be inadequate. What we need today is an approach to ethics which makes no recourse to religion and can be equally acceptable to those with faith and those without, a secular ethics. Uh, that was um, from a, uh, an article um, that reported a talk he gave a year or so ago in Mexico. But uh, a couple of years ago, he published a book called Beyond Religion, Ethics for the Whole World, or A Whole World, um, which outlines you know, in more detail his uh, vision of this. And he says, um, in Indian usage, secular far from implying antagonism toward religion or toward people of faith, actually implies a profound respect for and tolerance towards all religions. Now when he says um, in Indian usage, he's making um, a very explicit reference to the Indian constitution. Uh, which was put together in 1948. Um, and one of the leading figures in who actually chaired the committee that uh, wrote the Indian constitution was a man called Bimrao Ambedkar. And Ambedkar was the first um, minister of justice in Nehru's government. And Ambedkar was formerly a Dalit, uh, which means... Uh, regarded as an untouchable in India. He was sponsored by some British families who recognized that he was a very gifted young man. Um, he trained in, uh, in London, I think, or in Oxford, joined the bar, became a lawyer, and subsequently became politically active in India. He, was, um, he had enormous conflict with Gandhi, he didn't agree with Gandhi at all. Gandhi was not keen on Ambedkar either. Mm -hmm. And Ambedkar uh, wanted to get out of the caste system altogether. And the way he did this was by converting en masse with half a million followers in 1956 uh, to Buddhism. And that movement now is one that's one of the largest social political movements uh, that's active in modern India. 
to the point where it may at some point in the foreseeable future uh, gain uh, even national power. So there are certain tensions here. Ambedkar and uh, the Congress party certainly wanted to institute a secular constitution which, as the Dalai Lama uh, points out, is one that um, is not antagonistic to religion. And this, I think, is an important point. It goes back to some of the things I said at the very beginning. Um, but rather, it's a perspective that um, is deeply respectful of religious belief and religious practice and religious identity, um, but opens up a public space, as it were, that is not defined by the teachings or the doctrines or the practices of any particular religion. So for the Dalai Lama, secularity is deeply connected to the idea of tolerance, which of course is also a Buddhist value. And someone like Ambedkar is interesting because on the one hand, he's deeply committed to secular values, but on the other hand, he uses Buddhism as a means to achieve political and social goals. So the whole issue becomes rather complex. But nonetheless, I'm very, very uh, uh, pleased and reassured and inspired uh, to hear someone of the Dalai Lama's stature making uh, quite uh, um, affirmative uh, endorsements of a secular approach to life. I think the Dalai Lama's vision um, is in many ways to try to step outside of the limitations of any particular religious identity or belief and um, engage with others in such a way that we find a common set of human values and virtues that can unite us independently of whatever particular religious views we hold. That, I think, is one part of the Dalai Lama's public persona, the way he works as a global spiritual leader. But there's nonetheless a bit of a tension here. I've never heard him, either in speaking or in writing, apply the adjective secular to Buddhism. He doesn't talk of secular Buddhism. He talks of Buddhism, which of course he is the defender of the faith of Tibetan Buddhism and he's a very uh, devout practitioner of the Tibetan tradition. But he separates that from his commitment to secularity. It'd be very interesting to discuss this with him, but he's not exactly the sort of person you can just dash off a quick email to. <laughs> Or, you know, sort of chat on his Facebook page. Um, so that would be rather difficult. But um, I would be very curious to see uh, what he would think of um, a secular Buddhism. In other words, a bringing together of two things about which he is passionately committed, uh, a secular ethics and the practice of the Dharma. But he seems to keep them apart. He seems to imagine uh, two different zones. The zone of secular ethics, which is universal, 
as opposed to his Tibetan Buddhist commitments, which are clearly defined as uh, a particular sectarian religion. But what all of this um, discussion, I think, begins to point to is um, how do we actually relate secularity to religion? I'm not entirely comfortable with the Dalai Lama's approach on that point. It's a little bit ambiguous. And what I find more and more is that it's not only a question of trying to define what a secular Buddhism might be. And again, I think we have to emphasize might be. Um, we're not at a point yet where secular Buddhism has defined itself. People sometimes ask in groups like this, what does secular Buddhism say about ritual practices? Or what does secular Buddhism say about patriarchy? Well, secular Buddhism doesn't exist yet at the point where it can articulate answers to those questions. It's a work in progress. But what I also realize more and more is that it's not just about trying to work out what a, Buddha, a secular Buddhism might be. It's also, if we f do a kind of gestalt switch, it's also about considering what um, Buddhist secularity might be. In other words, I think of myself very much as a secular person trying to figure out what it means to be a Buddhist. And the end result might be a Buddhist secularity, in other words, a secular culture that is informed, inflected by um, Buddhist ideas and values, as much as being a Buddhist whose Buddhism is inflected or somehow influenced by um, secular values. So there's two things going on, actually. There's a, as we saw yesterday, there's a conversation taking place. And it's not just a one-way street. And I think, again, from some of the discussions we had yesterday afternoon, um, people are drawn to Buddhist values in a sort of general kind of way. They like the idea. But they often find that when they go to their local Buddhist center, uh, that's not quite what they had in mind. Um, it, again, they encounter what is often a quite uh, devout, ritualistic, uh, culturally um, uh, uh, specific kind of religious behavior, which expects devotion and bowing and uh, uh, assent to certain doctrinal beliefs which doesn't quite match how Buddhism uh, presents itself in the broader culture as being mindful and tolerant and compassionate and uh, open-minded and blah, blah, blah. And some of these people, as we heard yesterday, uh, then approach Buddhism not through Buddhist centers, but through going on an eight-week mindfulness course. And so... Here we have, I think, the beginnings of a secular world or people um, who are looking to Buddhism to somehow um, 
uh, clarify and refine and focus what for them are primarily uh, secular ideals, which kind of then take on a Buddhist coloring perhaps. Um, and had perhaps got no interest whatsoever in calling themselves Buddhists or signing up to the Buddhist religion at all. Um, and I have no problem with that whatsoever. I think that's rather a healthy thing, frankly. But it's also working the other way around. People who identify themselves as Buddhists but struggle with certain Buddhist ideas or certain Buddhist institutions are looking for a more secularized form of their, of their um, Buddhist identity. So where, how all this is going to play out, uh, I, I, no one has a clue, really. But I do think it's, uh, it's encouraging to find that this kind of conversation is going on, not just among people uh, in this room or who are interested in secular Buddhism or whatever, but also with figures like the Dalai Lama. I think the very fact that he... Uh, he, he, he uses the word secular in a very positive way, I think also um, in advances and encourages this discussion and this debate. So that's all I'm going to, to uh, say in terms of uh, the secular Buddhist element of this course today. I want to go back to um, this reflection on how we are arriving at a more secular understanding of uh, the Four Noble Truths. And I'm sorry to keep going on about this, but I think it's very important. Um, I do feel that this is so um, fundamental to what it means to practice the Dharma or to think of oneself as following, in some sense, the Buddhist tradition that it's vital that we get it clear. And one way in which I've tried to sort of summarize it as pithily as possible um, is in the acronym ELSA, E-L-S-A. And I was reminded by one of the participants that, that, that that's also a mnemonic. A mnemonic means a device for memorizing something. Um, once you've heard a, a phrase like ELSA, um, you're probably going to remember it. You might forget everything else that was said on this retreat, but that's the sort of thing that would stick. And that's the advantage of acronyms and mnemonics, is they give us a very, very, very succinct way of remembering. This, of course, is a good Buddhist tradition, of course. Buddhists love um, uh, summarized lists. And I think it's very uh, reflective of oral cultures. When the things are not written down, uh, you need to remember things. Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, Twelve Links. Um, this is standard Buddhist uh, territory. And sometimes for us it comes across as a bit sort of overly formalized and... Uh, um, you know, categorized and so on. But remember that the purpose of these lists is not that they describe 
um, everything there is to be known about a particular topic in a complete way, but that they enable us to remember the key points. So ELSA stands for E, embrace, L, let go, S, and I'm wavering on this one, uh, either stop or, as I prefer to say now, see, S-E-E, see, behold, and A, act. So embrace, let go, stop, slash, see, let's go for see, act. And that uh, maps onto the four tasks or the fourfold task that is embedded in the traditional doctrine of the Four Noble Truths. So this means to embrace dukkha, or as we've been discussing, basically to embrace the totality of life or the life situation in which you find yourself at any given moment. And we've looked at what this embracing or comprehending or fully knowing could be about. Letting go, the second one, is about letting go of reactivity, of the instinctive um, likes, dislikes, self-centeredness uh, that flare up like fires as soon as we encounter a situation. The third one is to see the stopping or the fading away um, of reactivity, to, to see what it's like and to feel what it's like to be non-reactive. And that's the experience uh, that is technically called nirvana, or the deathless, or the unconditioned. And so in other words, the third task is to consciously affirm and valorize those moments in which you see for yourself, with your own eyes, as they say, uh, that these reactive patterns have stopped of their own accord. They've faded out. Of course, they're going to flare up again. I'm not, one's not, the Buddha was not naive. But there are moments in life in which they are at least dormant, if not completely stopped. And there's also um, possibilities that we become more and more aware of when we do formal meditation practice that this, this stopping or this ceasing can be beheld even when the reactivity is happening. And that, I think, is actually a rather crucial point. In other words, the stopping is not just about those moments when we no longer experience attraction or aversion or whatever, but also those moments when those things are happening, but we understand and we see them happening and we experience the possibility and the freedom of not buying into them. So they can still be going on, but we've somehow become immune. Uh, they're no longer running the show. And this 
actually points to, I think, a rather important uh, thread of ideas that runs through uh, certain discourses within the canon. It's a minority thread. It's not the dominant orthodox view. And that is that uh, freedom from reactivity is not achieved by eliminating reactivity, but is achieved by not reacting to reactivity, as it were. Um, but there are two very different models in the canon. One, which is the dominant one, regards the aim of the practice and regards the achievement of the arahant, the saint, as one who has uh, cut off greed and hatred and delusion um, in the same way that one cuts off a palm tree at the root. Cut off like a palm stump, never to arise again. That's a phrase that recurs repeatedly in the text. In other words, the idea is that the arhant or the Buddha uh, is a person in whom these reactive patterns simply don't exist anymore. They've gone. They've been severed at root and they won't arise again. Now, I have all sorts of problems with that. First of all, um, I think there's enormous difficulty in understanding what it means in terms of how we currently um, understand the nature of greed and <coughs> hatred and selfishness. Greed and hatred and selfishness are um, natural instincts that have evolved um, over generations, millions of years of evolution and have conferred considerable survival advantages on at least our particular species. And to that extent, uh, reactivity is built into what uh, neuroscientists uh, call the limbic system. In other words, these are patterns of behavior that are embedded in our neurobiology. So, if that's the case, then what does it mean to cut them off like a palm stump? It gets pretty close to what we would describe today as lobotomy. <laughs> In other words, maybe one day when surgical science advances, we can achieve, we can become our hands just by having a, an operation. <laughs> I'm actually being quite serious here. Um, that does seem to follow. Whereas in traditional Buddhist uh, cultures, greed, hatred, and delusion are understood to be um, uh, functions of the mind. Now, what the mind is is a little bit unclear, but at the very least, it's some kind of immaterial consciousness or awareness or spirit that goes from life to life, from body to body, bringing with it the legacy of all of our past actions, our karma, as well as uh, all of these particular deeply-seated uh, reactive habits of mind. But they're not understood to have anything to do with the body. 
they are kind of uh, they are purely mental processes and if we look at it that way then yes you can imagine perhaps that they can be got rid of you do enough meditation get enough insight get enough samadhi and you can somehow purge yourself of these elements of your mind and that's pretty much the traditional view So we have, I think, you know, a problem here of interpretation again. But there is, as I've just mentioned, another thread of ideas that understand um, liberation or freedom um, in a very different way, not as cutting something off and destroying it, which if you think about it also carries with it more than a hint of violence, doing violence to ourselves. But the other thread of ideas um, suggests that it's not about destroying anything, but it's about learning to live with and relate to reactivity from another perspective. And these passages are predominantly found in the dialogues between the Buddha and Mara. Mara we've mentioned. Mara is the Buddhist demonic or devil. And Mara um, is a figure who appears to the Buddha throughout his life, particularly actually after he's attained awakening, become the Buddha, the awake one. And although the awakening is often described as the conquest of Mara, what's curious is that even after Mara has been conquered, Mara still keeps appearing. And there's numerous discourses, probably 40 or 50, in which the Buddha's giving a talk to his bhikkhus, and then it says, and then Mara appeared. And Mara came up to him and said... So what does that mean? I don't think it's possible for us to take this literally anymore, that Mara literally is some kind of disembodied spirit or demon or personality who magically pops up on earth, has conversations, and then magically disappears again. We're clearly talking in mythic and symbolic language. And that mythic symbolic language is a way of describing the Buddha's own inner life. In other words, um, it's acknowledging that even for the Buddha, reactivity still appears. It still happens because it's a natural evolutionary process that's part of us. And there's a wonderful, I mean, there are different ways in which the Buddha deals with these situations, but nearly all of them end with the Buddha saying, I know you, Mara, and Mara then vanishes. In other words, Mara is overcome, or reactivity is overcome, not by surgically removing it, or deleting it, or cutting it off, but by understanding it, by knowing it for what it is. Um, it's very similar, actually, to, say, Jungian psychology, where 
the neuroses, which are autonomous complexes in the psyche, are not overcome by destroying them, but by understanding them, or in um, the Freudian language, the id becomes ego. In other words, these instinctive forces become conscious. They become part of your self-understanding. And as Jung said towards the end of his life, instead of the neuroses having us, we have the neuroses. And that, I think, is very realistic, and I think it's very um, close to this uh, Buddhist understanding of Mara. Mara is something that is simply built into the structure of the human organism. Uh, we could even go further. It's built into the structure of the world itself. The world is, in a sense, a, a limit situation. It's a constraining situation. There's a wonderful um, uh, little um, uh, allegory, I suppose, that appears in the Sutta Nipata, which is one of the older sections of the Pali Canon, uh, where Buddha and Mara are having their usual sort of ding-dong. And then Mara slinks off, um, you know, browbeaten and defeated and pissed off. And um, then you have a, a few verses which you get into Mara's mind. And Mara says, I feel like a crow hovering over a lump of fat on the ground. And the crow, and, and, and the crow then uh, flies down to eat this tasty morsel of food, only to discover that it's actually a piece of stone and his beak pecks pointlessly away on the stone, and the crow then flies away. And Mara says, that's how I feel about Gautama. In other words, I'm like a bird trying to uh, uh, get some nourishment out of a person who I can't access anymore, like the crow trying to eat the rock. So in other words, the, um, uh, this is a, a metaphor of freedom, of liberation. That rather than destroying reactivity, we understand it for what it is, and we don't allow it any kind of purchase or foothold into our experience. So we may still experience you know, all kinds of rages and anger and lust and jealousy and envy and all of this stuff is still you know, flaring up, but it can't get hold. It can't sort of uh, latch on to anything and in the end it just flies away. Or in the metaphor of flame, it just sort of burns itself out. And I think that that way of thinking about freedom is actually much more compatible with how we currently understand uh, the human organism and the brain and so on. So the, this, this beholding of the stopping of reactivity is not just about those moments when the reactivity stops, but it's also about the relationship we have to these reactive patterns, that when they're happening, we're not caught up in them. And that, um, 
that experience, that is the experience of what technically is called the experience of nirvana. But as I said yesterday, this experience is not the goal or the end of the practice. Arguably, um, it, it's simply a phase within a wider task, a very crucial phase. If it might even be the phase on which the whole process turns. I sometimes think of uh, nirvana as a bit like the, the fulcrum or the hinge of the practice on which the thing turns from embracing dukkha, letting go of reactivity, beholding the stopping or the freedom from reactivity that then opens up uh, the possibility of seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, working, and so on, <clears throat> in a way that's not determined or conditioned by those reactive habits. And that's the fourth part of ELSA, A, act. In other words, now we can do something, now we can respond to life um, in a way that is coming from an, uh, a genuine kind of inner freedom, a freedom from the dictates of greed and hatred, etc. So in this particular version, um, the Eightfold Path is not the Noble Eightfold Path that leads to the end of suffering, but it's the Noble Eightfold Path that um, emerges from or is made possible by the stopping of reactivity or the freedom from reactivity. And that points to a, uh, a positive uh, affirmation of uh, living in the world, of doing something, thinking, speaking, acting, working. And in this light, Buddhism does not come across as a predominantly uh, monastic way of achieving some kind of spiritual liberation and transcendence and no longer having to be reborn, which I already said is the kind of the Indian mindset, but rather what this points to is how the Buddha's teaching is concerned with enabling us uh, to flourish more fully as human beings in relation to the world through the way we have found to respond to it and to ourselves rather than to react to it. So in other words, although we do a very, there's not a big shift in some ways, but once you move from truths and understanding truths um, and so on, especially ultimate truths and gaining your liberation through knowing how things really are, here we have a model that is task-based and is concerned, is not at all concerned with understanding what is reality. It's concerned with um, putting into practice a set of uh, strategies that uh, transform and change how we live in the world. Now what this also, I think, points to um, is that um, Elsa is describing more 
is, is, is perhaps better equipped to describe a fourfold task than it is um, four separate tasks. We can look at it both ways. They both have their virtues. But the more that one looks into the canon, the more you find there are endless overlaps in, in these ideas. And as an example of that, uh, there's a sutta in the Sanyutta Nikaya, um, 22-23, chapter, chapter 22, section 23, where the Buddha poses the rhetorical question, what is comprehension? Uh, what is parinya? What does it mean to embrace? In other words, he offers us a definition of comprehension, of embracing dukkha. And this is what he says. He says, uh, comprehension is the ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of confusion. Now, where have we heard that before? That is also the definition he gives of nirvana. It's the definition he gives of the deathless and the definition he gives of the unconditioned. Exactly the same words. Except here, comprehension or embracing is understood as ending of greed, ending of hatred, ending of confusion. What does that mean? I think what it points to is that this embrace of life, uh, this fully knowing, is a kind of knowing, a kind of embrace that is not inflected by our wants, our fears, our dislikes, our self-interest. So that when we practice mindfulness, for example, particularly when we move beyond just being mindful of the breath or the body, and our mindfulness extends to the entirety of a given situation, uh, that uh, mindful awareness, that comprehension, that embracing of experience is one that, um, if we look at it in more positive terms, is a kind of radiant, open-hearted equanimity. In other words, an awareness that's not determined by what I want. So in other words, there's an equanimity there. An awareness that's not um, determined by what I don't like. So there's an open-heartedness, a tolerance, a love for what's going on. And an awareness that's not determined by the sort of foggy, dull, uh, self-absorbed, perspective of egoism, in which case there's a clarity, there's a lucidity going on. We have to remember that when, the, when Buddhism uses its endlessly negative terminology, um, this doesn't mean just absence, like non-greed, non-hatred, non-confusion, are sometimes called the three roots of virtue. But it doesn't mean that uh, virtue is just the absence of those things. Virtue is actually the opposite of those things. Non-greed means a kind of a detachment, an equanimity, uh, a clarity of mind. Non-hatred means tolerance. It means love. 
uh, non-confusion means uh, clarity, discernment, intelligence. This is quite clear from the texts, but it's confusing uh, in that it uses this negative terminology. But for Buddhist cultures, you know, it doesn't have those associations at all. It's a bit like in English we use this word impeccability. Someone lives an impeccable life. But when we uh, use the word impeccable, when we talk of a person being impeccable, it doesn't suggest something negative, whereas the word does. Impeccable means, uh, it comes from the Latin pecare, which means sin, and im means not. It means not sinful. But you wouldn't guess that by the way we use the word impeccable. And it's a bit like apamada, which I translate as care, which actually means non-drunkenness. We looked at that. So we have to be very careful when we read these texts not to take these terms over literally. To understand what the word does mean in its different components is important, but it's dangerous to then assume that that's what it really means. What it really means is how it is used in context. This is a Wittgensteinian idea. The, the meaning of a word is not, is not found in picking it apart etymologically, although we might gain certain insights by doing that, but the meaning of a word is determined by how it's used in a living language. So in this idea of, of, of embracing or comprehension as uh, non-hatred, non-greed, non-confusion, what that points to is that this comprehension is actually already an experience of nirvana. Because nirvana is also non-greed, non-hatred, non-confusion. So if we embrace our life in such a way that it's completely uninflected by like, dislike, etc., that is already the experience of nirvana. Now that sounds kind of odd from a lot of traditional Buddhist perspectives. What it points to is that there's a, an overlap between the third task, experiencing the stopping of these things, and the first task of embracing the world. They're both defined in the same way. I think that's rather telling. And I feel that also supports the idea that we're really talking about a single task with four aspects rather than four separate activities. In other words, these, the, 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 this... Um, we're talking of a process, and a process that involves different phases, um, but the phases also overlap one with the other. Now, another metaphor that I feel is very important here is the metaphor of entering a stream. And... This is often called stream entry, 
and a person who has achieved it is called a stream entrant. And this is what happens when you move from the third to the fourth aspect of the task. In other words, beholding the stopping of reactivity um, opens up the possibility of um, entering the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is something to be cultivated, to be developed. And that process of cultivating and developing the path is called stream entry. So when we go to the single longest section in the canon on this topic, and once again it's found in the connected discourses, it's chapter 55, it's the penultimate chapter. Uh, chapter 55 is called the Sotapati Sangyutta, the Connected Discourses on Stream Entry. And here we get a very uh, clear account of what that means. Uh, but first of all, it defines what stream entry itself means. It says, and this is a, a, a dialogue with uh, Sariputta, between the Gotama and Sariputta, and uh, the Buddha asks Sariputta, what do, you, what do we mean by stream entry? And Sariputta says, <clears throat> this noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is the stream. That is complete vision, thought, speech, action, etc. Sariputta, we say a stream enter, a stream enter, what do we mean by that? And Sariputta replies, one who possesses the Noble Eightfold Path, Venerable Sir, is called a stream-enterer. So in other words, um, the stream refers to the path itself. But not just any old path, a path that has its origins in the stopping of reactivity. In other words, the way of life that is made possible by living from a perspective that's not determined by your innate reactive patterns, to put it in more psychological language. And the characteristic of the stream entrant is one uh, for whom that path has become their own. They possess, is the word used, they possess the path. It's now not something that you kind of believe in or you know, aspire to, it's now a way of life that's become uh, intimately part of your own life. It's become integrated. It's become the way you live. This doesn't mean that from then on you get everything right and everything works out fantastically. No, you're still having to constantly respond to the um, vicissitudes and the dilemmas and the conflicts and the strife of existence. There's no ending of suffering in that rather idealistic sense at all. But it's rather you've found a way of being in the world in which you uh, can come to terms with your life um, in a way that's non-reactive but responsive. But I think also um, it's important to step back and reflect on the metaphor itself. Um, 
I don't think the Buddha selects these metaphors just arbitrarily. I get the impression they're actually very much um, not only thought through, but I think are also um, indications of an extraordinary imagination to think of the path as a stream, as a stream. Now, a stream, of course, is, um, is a flowing body of water. I mean, that's obvious. We all know that. But a stream is also um, a flowing body of water that is, is contained. It's not like a sort of flood that sort of goes everywhere and fizzles out in the end. But a stream is held within two banks. In other words, it's channeled. Um, it has, um, that's precisely what give, it gives it its force. It's what gives it a sense of uh, leading to some destination, either a bigger river or the ocean. It's, it's a directive flow. And there are two elements here that are important. First, the idea of flow itself. And there's a psychologist whose name I can never pronounce. Someone here will know it. Mikael Schipschlangenblich or something like that. That's the guy. Yeah. I don't know why he doesn't change his name to Smith or Jones or something. Make life so much easier. I don't know. Ask Darius afterwards. It's a long string of C's and S's and M's and L's and K's and doesn't seem to have any vowels in it. Uh, completely unmemorable, unless you're Czech. <laughs> uh, Hungarian, okay. <clears throat> but what, what um, this fellow talks about is a psychology of flow. And for him, a life that is flourishing and healthy is a life that is flowing. That's as, that's as simple as it gets, really. Um, there's a lot more to it, obviously. Uh, in other words, how do we establish conditions in our life in which we learn to flow? But all of us, I'm sure, can relate to that metaphor. And we probably know that there are periods in our lives when we feel stuck, when we feel somehow frustrated in our aspirations, in our longings, in which we don't seem to be able to get a move on. We can't seem to, to really sort of enter into a creative process of living. We go around in circles or we just feel somehow jammed up. And periods in our life when everything seems to unfold in a very natural, spontaneous way. And I think even with meditation, uh, any particular session of meditation can be one in which you feel completely kind of stuck you're just going, your mind, the mind is just going round and round and round and round. And you feel frustrated and you feel kind of, you know, slightly enervated by the whole business. And then the next sitting, for no apparent reason, you settle into this calm, still space. And it's not a stillness that is static. That's the important point. It's a stillness that, in which you feel that the energies of your life are somehow freed up. There's a kind of flow, even though you're sitting dead still. And to me, that's often the main uh, uh, experience 
or the main aspect of that experience that leads me to say, I had a really good sitting. I had a really good sitting. It's because somehow there was something unblocked and, be and a beginning of a sort of freedom and a flow. It's also worth bearing in mind that Mara, the demonic reactivity, is metaphorically um, referred to as Namuchi in Pali or Sanskrit. Namuchi is a, is a, a demon from Vedic mythology uh, that um, prevents the falling of the monsoon rain. So Mara is understood metaphorically. Uh, again, we've already seen that Mara has to do with death, the killer, but also Mara is what prevents the water from flowing. So reactivity is a state of inner death, a state of inner stasis, and a state in which our life does not flow. And I think it's useful to think of these metaphors because in some ways they're more, they're richer than just sort of psychological ideas. Buddhism is very good in psychological ideas, but we often fail to see that there's a rich, mythic, metaphorical language uh, that underpins them. So this idea of a flow that is held within, as it were, a channel, a channel directive flow is supported or is, 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 is uh, clarified in another expression the Buddha uses when he defines stream entry. He says stream entry has four qualities. Four qualities. This is the main thrust of this sequence of texts in the Sanyutta. The first three qualities are... Um, Complete lucidity in awakening, complete lucidity in the Dharma, and complete lucidity in the community. Now, yesterday I translated that as lucid confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, and then I had a discussion with Kate afterwards, and I then went and looked it up again in the Pali Dictionary um, the word in Pali is avecha pasado. Avecha, um, the meaning is not entirely clear, but it's, it means something like complete or perfect, something like that. Buddha Gosha, the 5th century commentator in Sri Lanka who developed Theravada Buddhism, understands it as meaning um, achara, which means unwavering or unmoving. But that's an interpretation. The, the actual word seems to mean something like complete or full. And pasado um, actually means something like brightness. Um, it, it, it even actually does specifically refer to, to visual brightness, which again is close to the idea of beholding nirvana. It's again metaphor to do with the eyes. So this avecha pasador could perhaps be more literally translated as complete lucidity in Buddha Dharma Sangha, which Buddha Dharma Sangha is shorthand for 
the core values to which this path is committed. So in other words, they're like the banks of the stream. It's this kind of, uh, of, of, of lucidity which implies in usage a certain confidence or trust. That's definitely how the word is used, although that's not what literally the word means. So it's used as confidence or trust. And this confidence or trust or lucidity is about your, as it were, heartfelt commitment to leading a life that's more awake, which again is basically what happens through the practice of this fourfold task. The fourfold task itself is the dharma. There's a commitment to that. And this task is sustained and supported and nurtured and nourished by a network of friendships. And that's what <coughs> sangha means. Sangha community um, uh, has to do with um, embedding your practice within a framework of relationships. Whether that's an, a, a Buddhist organization, that's one way of looking at it, or it's simply an informal network of friendships that are deeply supportive in your life, not just as a one-way process, but also, as in any kind of true friendship, it's a two-way process. You support one another. There's not one figure who's in charge, um, who gives support to everybody else, but it's rather more an idea of an interactive um, network of friendships that is mutually supportive. And this idea is also um, intimately tied up with the idea of um, autonomy. In fact, in the, in, the dic in the dictionary, it gives a reference to this idea of avecha pasado. Complete lucidity is in one commentary um, defined as gaining um, independence of others in the teaching. So this lucidity is not, if it's considered to be like a kind of confidence or faith, it's not a blind faith at all, but actually it's a confidence that arrives through finding your own inner authority and autonomy. That's quite clear. And then it's further supported by this idea that the, the one who has entered the stream uh, possesses the Eightfold Path. In other words, it's become your own. Uh, it's no longer something that you have to ask somebody else about or ask for directions along. You, at this point, you become, as it were, your own guide. Your life and its values and your purposes and your supportive network of friendships are what support and move this process along. And then finally, the fourth of these um, uh, aspects of stream entry is called, um, is, is, is acknowledging that such a person cultivates the virtues that are dear to the noble ones. That, 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 that's the literal meaning of the term. 
In other words, it's a life committed to virtue, a life committed to realizing what we regard as the good in, 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 you know, in all of the different values we find throughout the Buddhist traditions are basically a way of articulating a conception of the good, of what it is you want your life to be like. I was going to say more about other ways of looking at stream entry, but we don't have time, so I'll have to stop here. Maybe we can start on that tomorrow. Okay. Walking period. And we'll meet again at quarter to 12.